thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food real with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. Hi team and welcome back to The Real Food Real. Today on the show, we are joined by Dr. Wayne Todd and Wayne is here to chat all about his SD protocol. So we'll welcome him to the show. Hi Wayne and thanks for joining us. Hi Steph, how are you going? Very well, thank you. Welcome to the show. It is your first time on The Real Food Real. So for our listeners, share with us a little bit about your background, um, whether it be your health and wellness story or your career or both. Okay, alrighty. So I'm a chiropractor of nearly 30 years and have done some postgraduate uh, training in functional neurology, uh, which is a handful of us in Australia who have that training. So, which gives us a fairly in-depth look at how the neurology of the body works from a functional perspective, um, quite different to mainstream uh, neurology. Um, and then, you know, over those 30 years in practice, so by the way, we've got uh, 21 practices that we run and a number of staff and practitioners and and uh, fairly fairly busy um, but over those 30 years I've always had a, a thirst for why did things start where did it start what caused that rather than constantly addressing symptoms that seems to go on within our healthcare arena um, I've always had a thirst for where did that start what was the cause and you know you, you can't go much further back than the primitive reflexic need to survive, that survival mechanism, which is paramount in, in every individual. And it's reflexogenic. It's something that we can't control voluntarily. It just happens automatically. Um, and, and really, how does that integrate with all of the systems in our body and all of the disease entities that we see occurring today, which is um, significant and... <laughs> You know, that whole fight and flight mechanism keeps us safe and keeps us protected. And when that activates, it shuts down our parasympathetic nervous system, which controls all the good stuff. Our digestion, our reproduction, our immune system is all suppressed when we're running from a lion. It doesn't need to work. So that, that survival mechanism diverts all our blood flow to our skeletal muscles so we can run and fight. It diverts blood flow away from our digestive system. So our intestinal membrane becomes semi-permeable, doesn't work as well as it should. We develop a leaky gut membrane. Our need to reproduce is suppressed. We don't need to be reproducing when we're running from a lion. Mm -hmm. So that stimulation for releasing an egg and falling pregnant is not there because we don't need to be falling pregnant when we're under stress and under load. And stress, um, you know, seems to be a word that's thrown around uh, quite freely today. And a lot of people think, I'm not stressed. Admitting that you're stressed or acknowledging that you might be stressed uh, is for some people a sign of, of weakness, I guess. And it's really not about that. Um, when we look at stress, it's not just physical stress it's not just emotional stress and it's not just chemical stress it's a combination of all of those things and i know 
that on a number of these these podcasts that we hear all over the place, people are talking about the chemical stress and the chemical load and the, our diet and nutrition, and that is really, really, really important. That's one aspect of the stress that winds our system up. But there's also the physical side of the triangle and there's the emotional side of the triangle. Um, you know, can, can I just give you an example <laughs> classically of, of of how that uh, might affect an individual. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, you know, young lady, Kylie, um, came in to see me a few months ago and uh, she said, oh, it's so nice to meet you. I've read your book and it makes so much sense and you just explained me and she's 29. She said, I've had two stomach ulcers. I've had stomach surgery. She said, I've had fertility issues. She said, I'm on two lots of anti-anxiety medication. You've just explained everything about me. So anyhow, we started working with her and, and worked with her for a couple of weeks doing putting the protocol into place and she took everything on holus bolus, did the whole lot. Then I was away for a week and my son, who's also a chiropractor, uh, looked after her for that next week. Then when I returned from holiday, so she'd been under care for three weeks and putting everything into place that she needed to do. I walked in the room and I did a double take. I went, oh, my God, look at you. And she said, I know, I feel amazing. She said, I don't recognize myself in the mirror anymore. And she totally transformed. You could see her whole aura had improved and she was offering anxiety medication and her no more indigestion all settled down within a very short period of time. And I said, you know, fantastic. And, and she said, oh, but, you know, yesterday wasn't such a great day, but generally I've been so much better. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, I said to her, what aren't you telling me, Kylie? And she said, what do you mean? I said, there's something going on that's holding you up from truly getting well. What is it? She said, what do you mean? I said, I don't know. You know, I don't. And um, <laughs> said, something's stressing you. What is it? And uh, she said, oh, could it be a shit marriage? And I said, yeah, Kylie, it could be a shit marriage. I said, how long has it been a shit marriage for? And she said, 10 years. I said, Kylie, you're 29. I said, so did you get married when you were 19? She said, yes. I said, so what did you see when you walked down the aisle? Did you see your husband at the end of, you know, of the aisle? She said, no. She said, I just saw my family and friends who were telling me not to do it. I said, hmm. I said, so you got, you got married and you've been married for 10 years. How many kids have you got? Two kids. I said, so you're holding this together for the kids and, and to save face because everyone told you not to do it. I said, do you love them? She said, no, straight away. Yeah. I said, can yeah. you ever see it changing? Can you ever see it working? She said, never. And I said, what's the go? And she said, he's mean, he's vindictive, vindictive he's manipulative, he's this, he's this, he's that. And uh, then she changed the subject and she said, now, I'm taking magnesium. How much should I take again? And I'm doing this. How much, what should I do? And, and so I wrote a few things down for her and I said, Kylie, there's one thing that you need to buy and you need to buy a can of piss the bastard off. I said, once you buy that can of piss the bastard off, you won't need all these other Band-Aids that have turned your life around in a matter of three weeks. And I said, those Band-Aids have done an awesome job, but you're going to keep needing them until you get rid of your razor blade. And your razor blade is living a very unhappy life every minute of your day. So until she addressed the emotional side of her triangle, you're going to need to keep pounding on that chemical and that physical side of the triangle to keep her well. So uh, anyhow, she made a decision um, to end that marriage. And, and I said to her, I said, look, you know, my 
would be just awesome if you could sort it out for you, your husband, and your kids. It would be way better if you could make this a happy life. But I said that if it's never going to be, you need to make a decision at some point. And so her life has turned around even better since making that, that decision. And not that you really want to turn people in that direction, but sometimes we really need to focus on what is the main kicker, what is the main stress. Is it emotional? Is it chemical? Some people can be doing everything well emotionally and meditating and nice relationship and doing fantastically but got a really crappy diet or they've got foods that are reacting with them that they don't know about Um, or they've got poor posture and they've got physical stresses, they're doing too much training, too much exercise, which you can do sometimes and stress your body. So it needs to be an ideal balance. We all need to be Goldilocks. Not too hard, not too soft, but just right. I think that's the the end goal for everyone, isn't it? (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a really fascinating example and it's definitely coming back to addressing the underlying cause, which I know is um, what you're all about. So you've obviously started to do quite a big um, summary for us on the SD protocol, which is wonderful. Um, So SD stands for sympathetic dominance. Can you tell us more about that? And then we'll sort of dive more into um, the underlying specifics. Sure, sure. So the autonomic nervous system is that part of our nervous system that controls everything that happens in our body automatically that we don't have to think about it. So we could call it the automatic nervous system for simplicity's sake. And that autonomic nervous system or automatic nervous system is divided into two components, sympathetic, parasympathetic. Sympathetic, purely all the function of that sympathetic nervous system is to keep us safe and protected. So it's our fight and flight mechanism. Sympathetics, when they activate, it increases heart rate, increases blood pressure, increases blood thickening. We get bitten by a line we don't want to bleed out. So people who are sympathetically dominant or sympathetically wound up may have an increased predisposition to deep vein thrombosis, strokes, clots, because their blood is generally thicker. Blood pressure will elevate, heart rate elevates, sweating increases, muscle tension in those front muscle groups in the top half of the body, getting ready, their shoulders ready to fight, pulling their shoulders forward, tightening up hamstrings, tightening up calf muscles. So people who have recurrent Achilles tendinopathy, recurrent hamstring strains, often they are sympathetically dominant or sympathetically wound up. People have chronic neck muscle tension and tightness because if you look at their, their posture, excuse me one sec, If you look at their posture, someone who's classically sympathetically wound up will have a slightly forward head posture and slightly rounded shoulders. And when you look at them from a side-on perspective, their head sits slightly forward of their spine. So for every centimetre that the head sits forward of the spine, the head weighs an extra four kilos of load. So some people can be two, three, four centimetres forward of their spine, which is increasingly significant load with gravity pushing the head to the ground. Those muscles at the back of the neck and shoulders have got to be working hard all of the time. So classically, someone with that sympathetic wind-up will have shoulder muscles that just feel like cement. They go and get a massage every week and get their shoulder muscles smashed. And the massage therapist going, oh, my goodness, your shoulders, your muscles feel like cement. They feel hard as a rock. They're chronically, chronically tight. When our sympathetic nervous system is also wound up, we become sensitive to light, sensitive to sound. Why would that be? We need to be on high vigilant alert waiting for attack. 
at that primitive reflexive level. So those are the people <coughs> who have got to have a dark room to sleep at night. Got to have the curtains pulled. Travel away somewhere, sleep in a hotel room and that bloody annoying alarm clock, throw a towel over it or a jumper or pull a cord from the wall because you can't handle that glow from the clock. Someone's, you know, in bed at night. What's that noise? Go downstairs. Someone's coming in. Someone's breaking in. Every little noise, every on high vigilant alert. You know, kids tapping underneath the dinner table. Tap, 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 tap. Mum looks at them like she wants to poke their eye out with the back of a fork. Um, you know, just that high sensitivity to noise and light is classic what we would see with someone who is sympathetically wound up. Light sleeper, vivid dreamer, classic again, because they're just on edge, waiting for attack. So when that sympathetic nervous, those are some of the symptoms that we would see with someone who is sympathetically wound up. And there's a whole host of other symptoms, but we won't um, bore your listeners with all of those those issues. But um, that's some of the, the basic things that we would say. But when that sympathetic nervous system is wound up, it shuts down the parasympathetic nervous system. It's a seesaw balance. You can't have one working and the other one working equally the same. Sympathetic switched on, parasympathetic switched off. Parasympathetics control our digestive system, our reproductive system, and our immune system and rest. So they're all suppressed. Chronic suppression of those symptoms causes a whole host of other issues. Um, if the listeners want to uh, jump onto uh, SD Protocol Facebook site, we'll put up some live video feeds on, on various topics. Um, we talk about their adrenal fatigue, polycystic ovarian syndrome, Irritable bowel syndrome or IBS, hypothyroidism, anxiety, anxiety and depression. All of those things are classic um, that we would see with someone who's sympathetically wound up. So we've got some you know, half-hour video feeds on those um, issues um, talking on the, our Facebook site. Um, but if we look at the example of... Um, you know, if I was talking in front of an audience now, I would ask a question. How many people know couples here that are having trouble falling pregnant with infertility issues. And there's usually a significant number of hands that are raised. And I would suggest in the 30 years that I've been in practice that um, <coughs> infertility seems to be becoming an increasingly more common issue that we see. Um, so if you consider the whole mechanism that, it, that involves there, when, someone, when we're sympathetically dominant, we don't need to be falling pregnant. The hypothalamus part of the brain sends a signal to the pituitary gland in the brain to release luteinizing hormone and follicle-stimulating hormone, which stimulates the ovary to release an egg normally. So when we're under stress, the hypothalamus doesn't send that signal, so we don't actually release an egg at that cycle. So we go through an anovulatory cycle. So you can have release an egg maybe every second or third or fourth cycle, and the other cycles you're not releasing an egg, but you still go through those cycles. When the ovary doesn't release an egg, it forms a cyst. Uh, most people, or a lot of people, aren't aware of that. They just think, oh, I've got cystic ovaries or I've got polycystic ovarian syndrome. That's what I have. That's just me. Um, but in actual fact, when the ovary doesn't release an egg because the signals have not been sent from the pituitary, a cyst is formed in the ovary. And when that happens at multiple cycles, you develop many cysts, so polycystic ovarian syndrome. When an egg is not released, a cyst forms and the wall of that cyst actually releases and generates testosterone and estrogen. And testosterone in a female 
needs some testosterone, but not excess amounts of testosterone. High testosterone levels in females will cause unwanted body hair, unwanted facial hair, which is quite a common issue that um, a lot of people have you know, a lot of distress over. Um, but that's largely because the ovaries and there's two places in the body that produce um, testosterone in the female, and that is the ovaries and also the adrenal glands. So when we're under stress, the adrenals are pumping away and they're also producing testosterone. But an interesting, interesting factor there, when estrogen levels are high, which happens when, when an egg is not released, we don't produce progesterone. So our estrogen and progesterone um, hormones go out of ratio and that estrogen levels become high. High estrogen and also high cortisol inhibit um, thyroxin from the thyroid gland binding to cell receptor sites and they both also inhibit the conversion of inactive T4 thyroxin to the active form T3. So what happens is people have all the signs of an underfunctioning thyroid, um, which is cold, feeling cold, tired, dry skin, brittle nails, hair falling out, difficulty losing weight, um, and they go and get their thyroid function test done and it comes back normal thyroid function, normal. What's actually happening is the thyroxine is circulating in the body, but it's not able to bind effectively to cells to work um, because high estrogen and high cortisol levels are inhibiting that. So we see a whole flow-on effect. Also, high cortisol levels, when we're under stress, the adrenals produce cortisol, high cortisol levels um, also inhibit the pancreas from secreting insulin so we become insulin resistant because when we're running from a lion we need to have sugar in circulation now so we have energy now so we can run so we can fight so we need that sugar in circulation which also then gives us the need for more sugar so we actually start craving sugar wanting sugar um, and then when insulin levels become quite low what happens is we're not actually taking sugar into our cells effectively so they're not getting appropriate energy so our appetite increases to actually increase intake of food to give us more sugar which becomes a whole big vicious cycle but it's largely associated particularly in females with that anovulatory cycle because under stress so to develop a you know polycystic ovarian syndrome you have to have one of three symptoms or sorry not you have to have at least three symptoms which are anovulatory cycles infertility or elevated and or elevated uh, testosterone levels which is either confirmed clinically by increased facial body hair or with laboratory uh, blood tests looking at free testosterone levels and also you can have um, elevated levels of or numbers of cysts on the ovaries confirmed with an ultrasound so people have these syndromes and think, well, that's what I have. I have this syndrome, which is a list of all these different symptoms, but the symptoms are just a, a, a consequence of a poorly functioning system in the body. Have you gone to sleep, Steph? <laughs> no, absolutely not. I'm extremely interested. I was just thinking about how it really is the, the perfect storm, um, so to speak, the perfect storm that can create, you know, I guess a lot of health complications. Yes. Um, but I think it's really interesting because, as you mentioned earlier, we talk a lot about stress and it is a huge topic at the moment. So I do want to talk a little bit more about that in relation to adrenal health. Um, mm -hmm. We do also hear the term adrenal fatigue being thrown around 
quite a lot, which isn't something I, I love in terms of a definition. Um, do you Would you say that you prefer adrenal fatigue or adrenal dysfunction? And then tell us more about that in relation to um, your SD protocol. Look, it, it, it doesn't really matter what label you put on it, um, whether you want to call it adrenal fatigue, adrenal exhaustion, adrenal dysfunction. It's a wound-up adrenal system. Um, essentially, when we're under stress, be that physical, chemical or emotional, um, our adrenals are pumping away all of the time, producing cortisol, which is our primary stress hormone, which, by the way, cortisol converts to cortisone, which is our body's own natural anti-inflammatory as well. And to produce cortisol, the primary building block for that is cholesterol. So we need cholesterol to produce cortisol, which our adrenals need when we're under stress, to also produce uh, cortisone. So one of the, um, this is probably not answering your question directly, but we'll get to it in a sec, but um, relevant when we're, a lot of people don't know, you know cholesterol, um, only 25% of cholesterol that we have in our body we get from diet and 75% we produce ourselves, and it's produced in the liver by concentration of bile salts as a result of increased demands for cholesterol, which is placed primarily by the adrenals because we need more cortisol to be produced. So when we're under Stress, our body produces more cholesterol, so our cholesterol levels rise. Does that mean, mean we need to be put on a statin medication to lower our cholesterol? When, you, when you're actually put on a statin medication, it lowers cholesterol, but it also, we need cholesterol to make our good hormones as well, progesterone and testosterone. So when we are put on a statin medication to drop cholesterol, we also reduce our effective production of progesterone and testosterone. So in males who are put on statin medication, their testosterone levels will typically all also drop. So they lose their drive, strength, stamina, sex drive. That all reduces when they've been put on a statin medication because there is a thing called a cortisol steel pathway or a pregnenolone steel pathway that um, – that demands most of the cholesterol that we have be taken and shuttled to produce cortisol and not the good hormones as well. So that's another double whammy there um, for someone who's also put on, on statin medication. But back to your question that you asked about adrenal exhaustion and adrenal fatigue or adrenal dysfunction, do I believe it exists? <coughs> yes, I do. Some people, particularly in the extreme stages of adrenal overload, Basically, it wears out. Uh, when I say wears out, it just it's working hard, hammer and tong for weeks, months, years on end, and then it just exhausts. And when it exhausts, it creates a whole host of other symptoms. And you know, in extreme extreme examples of that, people often get labelled as fibromyalgic or have chronic fatigue syndrome um, because their adrenals are just spent, done. And typically, someone who's in that situation of being of being significantly adrenally exhausted, you look at what's been going on in their life in the preceding 12 to 18 months, and there's usually been some significant monumental life-changing events that have taken place, be it a divorce, separation, a bankruptcy, a death in the family, um, major surgery, a whole host of possible major stressors that lead up to that whole adrenal exhaustion 
um, then creating that whole flow-on effect with the, with the other symptoms associated. Does that answer your question, Steph? Yeah, absolutely. I think certainly it just highlights the importance of, you know, where that sympathetic dominance flows onto and certainly how it can end in that that state that we see all too common mm-hmm. in adrenal dysfunction. So how would you test that in your clients? You could you could test that certainly by checking cortisol levels, doing salivary uh, cortisol levels, which are you take salivary samples at four different times throughout the day to check cortisol levels. That would be a way of definitively um, putting a, a a marker on the extent of adrenal exhaustion by looking at cortisol levels. You could do that, um, but you could also just look at the general symptomatology of that individual and look at. Uh, the, what you would expect to see with someone with adre- adrenal exhaustion and look at their other organ systems and their function as well and correlate that. Um, so you, you may or may not need to do a salivary hormone test, but the salivary hormone test is certainly the most specific way of checking cortisol levels rather than a blood test, which is a one-time snapshot sample at that time of the day. You've got to look at the, the um, different times of the day to get appropriate cortisol readings. Yeah, absolutely. Wonderful. Mm. Now, another element that I wanted to explore with you um, uh, in your protocol is around leaky gut and what you do from a food sensitive uh, sensitivity point of view. Mm-hmm. So, um, as we talked before, when you're when you're under stress, blood flow is directed to skeletal muscle, so you can run and fight, not to your gut. So we've we've probably you know all can remember a Christmas Day lunch. Um, when everyone's you know, eaten more than they should have, and then there's some after after lunch activities outside, cricket or swimming races or whatever it might be, and um, people you know trying to win and, and, and take home the trophy cup, put all their effort in, and uh, end up collapsing on the ground. Their legs don't work because they've got no blood in their legs. It's all in their gut, in their gut digesting lunch. Um, but the reverse of that happens when we're under constant stress. We don't have a lot of uh, blood flow to our intestinal lining, <laughs> so that intestinal lining just doesn't get poor, doesn't get good nutrient flow from our bloodstream um, to rejuvenate the cells and turn cells over, and we also don't get uh, good neurological function. So nerve function is shut down, vagal nerve stimulation is shut, shut down to intestinal lining, and so is blood flow over a long period of time leads to a poorly functioning digestive system. Not only does that lead to poor enteric motility where we get a reduction in the normal bowel movement and bowel function and sluggishness occurs. We also get biliary motility is reduced, so bile stasis in the formation of um, sluggish um, or sludge in the gallbladder, which can often crystallise and turn into gallstones. So gallstones and gallbladder dysfunction are commonly associated with sympathetic wind-up. But that getting back to that poor digestive uh, membrane, what happens then, that digestive membrane um, becomes semi-porous. So we leak partially digested foods, toxins, waste products from our intestinal tract through into our bloodstream. What happens then is our body targets those substances as foreign, which it should, and it mounts an immune response. And the the most uh, common immunoglobulin response is an IgG response in our bloodstream that attacks those substances that shouldn't be there. When we have an, an immune response in our bloodstream, we also get the release of inflammatory cytokines 
or inflammatory markers, which then race around our body and attack other tissues. So it causes inflammation in other tissues. It may attack the thyroid, we get thyroiditis. It may attack joints, we get arthritis. It may attack the nervous system, the myelin sheath around the outside of the nerve. So we may get MS-like symptoms, Parkinson's, autism spectrum, any sort of inflammatory neurological response can be associated with a poorly digest, functioning digestive system. Skin, eczema, lungs, asthma, all of those, any tissue, there's um, over 80 now diagnosable autoimmune disorders. Long-standing inflammation in tissues will lead to an autoimmune um, label being bestowed upon um, that condition so rheumatoid arthritis multiple sclerosis psoriasis all of those conditions are known as autoimmune disorders but typically that is associated in my book with elevated inflammation and or a decreased ability to fight that inflammation as in the adrenals are suppressed as well or adrenals are fatigued so not producing a lot of cortisol which is not then producing enough cortisone so it's that's again a perfect storm leading up to an autoimmune disorder where we have elevated inflammation and reduced ability to suppress that inflammation, reduce cortisone production. So how would we detect a leaky gut membrane? Well, there's a number of ways that you can do that to work out what foods you may be eating that may well be leaking through that digestive membrane. One of the things that I do definitively is send people for a food sensitivity blood test, an IgG food sensitivity blood test, which checks, depending on the company that you use, will test anywhere between 93 to 96 um, food groups. And essentially what happens is blood is drawn, it's poured over a test tray in the lab, and the test tray has 93 compartments with smearings of 93 different foods. And then in the... uh, lab the technicians look for clumping then the blood is poured over that tray and then you look for clumping of red blood cells in each of those different compartments so more clumping more of a igg response so that will help definitively tell you which food you're reacting to or which food is leaking through your digestive membrane once you have that food sensitivity blood test results back then it's a process of eliminating those foods from your diet for three to six months, and during that time frame, doing everything you can to help that gut lining heal. And this is really, really important. So pull the foods from your diet, then to help that gut lining heal, bone broths, amazing. Um, micronutrient powders, so there's a lot of the nutraceutical companies have a gut formula or a gut powder. For want of a better description, it's a green powder like a spirulina powder that has glutamate, glutathione, slippery elm, marshmallow root, a number of um, natural substances to help that gut lining heal. Probiotics, really, really important to help that gut lining heal. There's no point in just removing the food. Most people, when they remove their trigger foods, will feel dramatically better within a week to 10 days, quite significant. They often say, oh, my God, I feel the best I've felt in 40 years since pulling milk out of my diet or whatever um, food shows up. But So that would be one way to ascertain which foods are leaking through is to do that blood test. Um, Oh, I've tested over 500 people now, and I I call it the quadrilla, the big four. What have I seen as the biggest, most common food reactants that people have that make the biggest difference when they remove them from their diet or the most common ones that come through? And that is in order, wheat, dairy, eggs, and corn. 
and I'm talking corn products, so corn starch, corn flour, dextrose starch, dextrose syrup. Essentially, you pull those four foods out of your diet, you take yourself back to fruit, veggies, and meat, which can't do you much harm. Um, you know, people often have quite chronic uh, health conditions. Um, you know, another example, a lady I've been looking after for a number of years and had been through three really ugly marriages. And she's in her mid-50s, and she had um, got severe degeneration in her knees and her feet, degenerative osteoarthritis, hands, knuckles look gnarly, looks older than she should. She's carrying a lot of extra weight. Her thyroid's under-functioning. We just did some x-rays of her spine, and she's got significant a degeneration in the facet joints in her spine. So she's got degeneration in multiple joints throughout her body. And her system is significantly inflamed and has been for a number of years. So I started talking to her about, um, you know, about getting a food sensitivity blood test. And that's, you know, the $380 test. So they're not a cheap test. There's no Medicare rebate on it. And she said, oh, she said, I don't really want to do that now. And what else can I do? And I said, look, you can pull the big four out of your diet, wheat, dairy, you know, egg and corn, and start with that and see how you feel. And she said, wheat and dairy? So so, so, what do I have for breakfast? Mm. <laughs> so, oh, so I, can't have, so I can't have cereal and milk, uh, toast. Oh, she's like, and she nearly had a heart attack. And tr- even thinking about it, and then her next response to me was, can't you just send me so I can get an injection in my spine for my back pain? Wow. Because it was all too hard to even contemplate pulling wheat and dairy out of their diet. So that's where people really need assistance in helping change and guide them through. And from the work that I see you do, Steph, you know, fantastic work with helping guide people through changing their lives and changing their food and their nutrition around because it's so powerful if you can identify the particular foods that people are having issues with. Um, You know, I talked about the blood test. So you could do pull the big four as another option. You could also do a food, you know, an elimination diet, go back to really basics, basic, 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 you know, fruit and veggies and start with that. do that for you know a good couple of weeks and then actually slowly reintroduce other food groups and watch and see how your body responds. When you talk to most people, most people already know what's not good for them, what they react with. And every time I have a coffee, I feel bloated. We're talking having a latte or something with you know cow's milk. Um, I just feel so bloated. It's like, how long have you been doing that for? Oh, years, but I just like coffee. Okay. And you're wondering why you've got a sore knee or why you've got psoriasis or why you've got, you know, neurological irritation um, when in actual fact they need to pull particular foods out of their diet. And it can turn people around in a short period of time when you pull your trigger foods out of your diet. So there are a number of uh, ways to approach that, um, but certainly it's, it's powerful for a lot of people. Oh, I completely mm. agree. I think IgG testing is also really helpful for those that, you know, that are already eating real food. You know, they're probably... Um, more examples that you see and, and certainly what I see with my test results, like a lot of our listeners are already, you know, e- eating jerf, as we say. So things like wheat, dairy and corn perhaps wouldn't be an issue for them, but there can be lots of natural foods that you're expressing an immune response to. So that can change your life completely by, um, you know, I guess identifying what those foods are, removing the guesswork mm. and going through a, a, a graded elimination protocol. 
Yes, and just an example of that, a classic example. I was at a conference last year and um, another practitioner there asked me to check his wife who had been really unwell for a couple of years, extremely exhausted as it, as it turned out. And uh, I went through with her a number of things that she could do to change and, you know, talked about the protocol and she read the book and got her husband adjusting her in a particular way to work on her physical pattern. And she was when I talked about diet, she said, I, I have no wheat, no dairy, no this. And she said, I'm really clean. I eat whole foods and organic and I've already got that sorted. So she pretty much dismissed when I was talking to her about the food sensitivity blood test because she'd already got that sorted. And uh, so then I saw them maybe six months later at another conference and I said, how are you going? And she said, oh, I'm so much better. Oh, but, you know, it's like, mm, I'm still not quite. And, and I said, have you done that food sensitivity blood test? And she said, no. I said, do yourself a favor and do it. Anyway, she did it. Three weeks later, she phoned me up. She said, you would not believe what showed up. She said, there was one thing that showed up, almonds. Yeah. She said, really I was I was eating fistfuls of almonds and almond meal and baking with it. And, and she said, and I pulled that out of my diet. Oh, my goodness. She said, I just feel a million bucks since I've pulled almonds out. You know, and it, and it sometimes can be that just one specific thing for that individual once you identify what that is. Some people, it can be a multitude of things. Yeah, I totally Another, agree. Mm. Yeah, one, one, sometimes, you know, we get people to do food sensitivity blood testing and it comes back with zeros on everything. How many times have you seen that? A few. Okay, I've only seen it once. I've <laughs> seen it a few times. The, the first time I, I saw it was a lady who was, had, was bloated, she had wicked digestive issues, constipated, diarrhea, and so I sent her for this test and I was hanging out for the results to come back. It came back zeros on everything and I thought, oh, damn, something's wrong. So I phoned the lab and I said, look, I, have you still got um, blood there? Yes, they said, yes, we have to store blood for seven days after. I said, can you run the test again? Because I think that must have been something wrong with that test um, kit that you used. So they ran the test again and came back zeros again. So then when that came back, I phoned them, I said, do you get your test kits in batches and they get them from the States? And, and um, they said, yes. And they said, look, we've got another batch coming in in a couple of weeks. I said, because I said, there's got to be something wrong with that batch. This lady is really sick. And um, so they, they, we sent it back to the lab. They drew blood again a couple of weeks later, new kit, new batch. They did the test again, zeros on everything. And then at that point, I'm starting to think, geez, this test is really not that credible because this lady is really stuffed. And at that point, I had a dawning. So we actually um, put her on digestive enzymes before she eats, and instantly all her issues went away. So what was going on with her was that her sympathetic nervous system was under such load that her production of di um, digestive enzymes was not there. So she wasn't producing much digestive enzymes at all. That parasympathetic nervous system was significantly suppressed. And so she wasn't able to initiate the breakdown of any food. Um, so when we put her on digestive enzymes before eating, bang, straight away, all her, all her issues disappeared digestive system wise. So, and I've seen that probably only three or four times subsequent, um, but digestive enzyme, bang, sort the people out straight away. It makes a lot of yeah. sense. I just wanted to talk to uh, one more point on the IgG testing with eggs because they are in your um, big top four and I see them quite a lot. But what about your thoughts on testing free-range eggs versus yeah, that'd be conventional good eggs? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, that would be a, a really neat to do that because eggs are a real bummer if that shows up in your test because they're a good staple for a lot of people and, and really good for you generally. Um, often people come back with more common egg white than egg yolk. 
for whatever reason, I don't know if you've seen that step, but I've seen more people with egg, egg uh, white rather than egg yolk. Um, but it would be really neat to see if we could actually test organic free-range eggs as opposed to um, standard um, battery or cage eggs. Yeah, I think mm. it's more important that the like if the individual's been consuming cage eggs and runs the test, that perhaps the assumption isn't made that it's all eggs. Mm. Yeah, and no, I acknowledge that. And mm. I haven't looked at differentiating that, and that would certainly be well worthwhile. Yeah. But I don't know um, how you would get a lab to actually differentiate or test between the two. Maybe I think maybe can... though, if you're working that with that client, then what you could do is say when they reintroduce eggs, you would yeah. prioritise yeah. free yeah. range. Geez, you're, geez, you're smart, Steph. <laughs> How did you get so smart? Uh, but, yeah, <laughs> yeah really that, interesting. And, and to the point about – what was that, sorry? That would be a, a really simple way to do it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But also to your point about um, almonds, I think eggs fall under this category as well. With someone that's eating really clean, so to speak, it's really easy to fall into this trap of over-consuming your favourite food. So you're having almonds and snack, almond meal and your paleo bread, almond milk in your latte. And really, that's how you develop an immune reaction by over-consuming even what is otherwise a healthy food. Eggs mm-hmm. are similar in someone doing low-carb or real food. As you say, it's a really, really great stable, but staple. But these are not foods that you should be consuming, you know, 24-7. No, exactly, exactly. And usually when the foods come back that the people react to, they go, oh, my God, they, that's it. That's what I love. I, I have that day. all the time. Yeah. I have that all the time. It's like, well, that's why. Mm. Yeah. Too much. Fascinating. Mm. Mm. Cool. So I think there's been a lot of, um, you know, light bulbs going off in our listeners about that sympathetic dominance. Is there an actual sort of questionnaire? Like how many symptoms do you think you'd need to possess to – to benefit from this SD protocol or, I guess, have that sort of diagnosis, so to speak? Well, I'm going to, off the top of my head, I don't actually, we have a brochure that we give people which has a um, checkbox a list. Yep. How many of these things would you check? And the more of them that you would check, the more likely you are to have, oh, hang on, I see one sitting here in the study. <laughs> right there, perfect. Okay, so the checklist is... How many of these things would you tick? Mm. Shoulder and neck, shoulder and neck tightness, sensitivity to light and noise, headaches and or migraines, light sleep and vivid dreams, anxiety or depression, digestive upsets such as bloating, irritable bowel syndrome, allergies or diarrhea or constipation, high blood pressure, increased blood clotting factors including risk of DVT or stroke. Most people are not going to know the answer to that unless they had their blood tested. Uh, Problems with inflammation, gallbladder dysfunction, thyroid problems, hormonal imbalance, infertility, polycystic ovarian syndrome or uterine fibroids. So the more of those things that you would tick, the more likely or probable it is that you may have a wound up sympathetic nervous system. Yeah, so there's about 15 there. So if you had, what, five, would you still benefit from the protocol? Oh, yes, yeah, yeah mm. because some of those things like increased blood clotting factors, uterine fibroids, you know, you, they may not know that, and particularly if they're a bloke, they're not going to have, it, you know, the last half there, yeah. infertility, polycystic ovarian syndrome, because guys can get um, sympathetic dominance just as much as females. It's, uh, but we see a lot of uh, more significant flow-on effect with females largely because of the female hormones. 
yeah. and that shutting down of ovulation. Uh, interestingly, with um, hypothyroidism or an underfunctioning thyroid, there's a 10 to 1 ratio females to males. So you're a thousand times more likely to have an underfunctioning thyroid if you're a female than if you're a male. And that largely is associated with estrogen. High estrogen levels, as I said, inhibit. Um, thyroxine binding to cell receptor sites and inhibit the conversion of inactive to active thyroxine and therefore um, increase the demands on the thyroid to produce more thyroxine even though it's not working and not effective so the thyroid gets bigger and bigger and bigger and people will develop a goiter or Hashimoto's thyroiditis or benign nodular goiter. Mm. Yeah, fascinating, yeah. fascinating stuff. Um, so I have one last question. Tell us about these very trendy red lens glasses that I see <laughs> everywhere and certainly in your online shop. Righto. So red lens glasses, If you, if, <clears throat> it's one of the things that we use in our protocol. And to try and summarise, um, and I'll get to back to your red lenses in a sec, because one another question that, that, I'll, that I'll answer before you ask it <laughs> is what do people do? What do people do? Yeah. Um, to actually change and to calm that sympathetic nervous system down. So um, in the book, SD Protocol, um, which was, is available on our website, sdprotocol.com.au, but in that book, the last page of the book is a summary of what you do. And essentially what I've done and to try, the book is written for the general public to understand. Um, so I've made it simple putting complex terms into simple uh, to understand formats. So the area of the brain stem that where, where our sympathetic nervous system originates from has a whole bunch of nuclei that sit in there that are all responsible for different aspects of our fight and flight mechanism. And I, I do a cross-sectional slice of that area of the brain stem and the picture that I have of that cross-sectional slice is a family four-wheel drive with five, five kids sitting in the back of that four-wheel drive and the mum and dad in the front. And they're all called embryological homologs in neurological terms, which just means brothers and sisters, and they all formed at the same time embryologically to keep us safe and protected. So it, the whole protocol is aimed at each different aspect of the protocol is aimed at calming one of those kids down in the back of the four-wheel drive. If you calm one down, the car becomes a bit calmer. Calm two, three, four down, you've got a much quieter and a happy family vehicle, which is what we're looking at with that sympathetic drive. So red lenses will calm one of those kids down, one of those nuclei that are resp <coughs> that's responsible for light input and that light sensitivity. So red lenses, if we think of the colour spectrum of the rainbow, it is red through to blue. Red wavelength is a very long, slow wavelength. Blue wavelength is a very high-frequency wavelength and more harsh light, and that's typically the light that is emitted from our computer screens and televisions and um, fluoro lighting, etc. is a blue light. So if we put a red filter on, it dampens and converts all light coming into the brain to a red wavelength, which is a long, slow wavelength, and those red lenses are specifically formulated to actually calm down that one kid in the back of the four-wheel drive, that one nuclei in the brainstem. So red is, a, is, is one mechanism that we would use to help calm that nuclei down. And you would use those glasses in low-lit environments, so inside, dull days, working on computers, etc. They're not for outside on a bright, sunny day. You'd need you good polarised sunglasses outside. So the whole protocol, red lenses is one thing we look at calming down 
sound input, so wearing earplugs in noisy environments. We do in chiropractors who are, that we train specifically, um, and on our website we've got practitioners who are trained throughout Australia now, and that number is increasing every year when we train more and more practitioners who are aware of how the protocol works because there's a specific way in which we would adjust the rib cage, particularly the upper rib cage, to actually help reset that postural pattern that people have and that fight and flight mechanism. So that's another part of the protocol is getting adjusted specifically. Uh, and as I said, using earplugs and then this particular nutrients that we would recommend. Magnesium is just amazing for helping support adrenal function. Magnesium is important for 280-odd metabolic functions in the body. And, and most we can't store magnesium and most people are deficient in magnesium because our soils are quite deficient in magnesium and when we're under stress, we burn it off as well. Withania is another supplement that we recommend, which is from the ashwagandha root and withania is one of the few nutrients that help support and enhance adrenal function. It is an adaptogen, so it will help calm down an overactive adrenals and will help support and bring up the function of an exhausted adrenal system as well. Uh, we get people to lie on a posture pole or a half foam roller to help reset their posture passively. And then we also give them specific instructions with regard to exercises to help change the posture and then their exercise pattern, what to do to not fire up their sympathetic nervous system. So, you know, for those people who go to the gym regularly, we would get them to avoid doing bench presses, push-ups, pec decks, boxing classes. Avoid doing working on those muscle groups that are actually the front muscles on the top half of our body, just pulling us more into that fight-and-flight mechanism and we would get them working more on their extensors, their rhomboids, their upper body extensors, so doing dumbbell extensions, ergo, rowing machine, those type of activities that would have a far greater effect on helping change that posture and reduce that sympathetic fight-and-flight posture. Clear as mud. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's a great summary. The SD protocol, I mean, you've done a brilliant job in talking about, I guess, a really holistic topic and certainly looking at all the elements of um, whether it be the physical, emotional and chemical stresses and the effect on the organ system. So uh, we thank you for contributing this and I would love our listeners to check out more. Um, did you have anything else you wanted to add on the SD protocol before we wrap up today, Wayne? No, I think we've covered it all, Steph. Beautiful. Um, I'm really um, pleased that you invited me to speak. I just My passion is to get this information out to as many people as possible so that people don't suffer and needlessly and, and treating symptoms that, you know, when I walk into a room and I see someone with a thyroidectomy scar on their neck and I go, oh, you've had your gallbladder removed and you've had a hysterectomy. And they go, how do you know that? And I go, well, the thyroid was third. You had your gallbladder out first, then you had a hyster, and now you had your thyroid out. And they usually break down in tears and go, oh, my God. And then when you explain to them all the other symptoms that they've probably had throughout their life, they go, you know all about me. And it's really not difficult. It's actually quite simple, that whole flow-on effect, but it's taken years to put all that together, and that's my mission to try and help stop people suffering. Yeah, amazing. It's been so fascinating speaking with you, and um, I've got a couple of clients doing your protocol at the moment, so I look forward to sharing their progress with you um, very soon. Excellent. And um, we'll, I'm sure we'll have you back on the show again soon and I'll get all our listeners to head to the show notes to find um, certainly your website and social media pages to find out more. Thanks again, Wayne, and we'll talk to you soon. Okay, thanks, Steph. My pleasure. Bye-bye. 
This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.